This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Joy Williams, Chicken Hill, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 2015. You go away now, and when you come back in a few months, say, I'll give you some jewelry. I'll come back tomorrow. That's so soon, Ruth protested. But all right, the day after tomorrow. The important thing is to go away now. The story was chosen by Dana Spiotta, who is the author of four novels. An excerpt from her most recent novel, Innocence and Others, was published in The New Yorker in December. Hi, Dana. Hi, Deborah. So you've chosen a very recent story by Joy Williams, who's been publishing stories for more than 30 years now. How did you first come to her work? I first was reading her novels. Gordon Lish actually was the person who recommended Joy Williams' work to me. I was working for him at a uh, literary magazine called The Quarterly. And I I loved the novels. And in fact, The Quick and the Dead remains a a huge influence on me. And and my second novel really showed me how to write about political content without being didactic, being funny, you know. I guess what stays with me always with her is just how great her dialogue is. She's really a master of humorous dialogue, and uh, and that's been a big influence on me. Do you think there's something particularly distinctive about the way that she writes stories? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we see a lot in her stories are all in this story. We see the importance of animals. We see the precocious children, a child rather, um, and we see a person who's sort of uh, between two worlds, sort of in this world and in the next world, the slippage between the past and the present, um, and, and then trying to figure things out, trying to read the symbols that are there and having some difficulty with that. And maybe just this moment of grace at the end, which is just a matter of seeing clearly for a second. So I think um, all of those things I see in a lot of her other stories and in her novels. I also think there's a very unusual and surprising diction that you'll see in the story that is is part of her genius. It's funny. I, I read an interview with Williams, and there's a quote from it that I noted down, which which I think includes just about everything you just said, <laughs> which is, she said, I think the beauty of the short story is that it finds the moment in the character's life where the past and future combine, usually in a terrible instance in the present that illuminates everything and yet shuts everything off too. Flannery O'Connor described it as a moment of grace that's offered and is either rejected or accepted. That was her pivot. I think that's very beautiful. You can't beat that. So it's kind of exactly what you just said that she that she's aiming for in her stories. Yeah, she says versions of this a lot. And uh, and you see it in her stories. And in this one, that it's absolutely a true description of, you know, this the slippage between the past and the future or the past and the present. And it really is just almost ends on the moment. So that's uh, a good description of the story. And also just that word terrible that she puts in there is, again, her surprising diction that's always so striking. And I think it makes things more expansive, even though she's not explaining anything. Now, this story, um, the first time I read it, I, I was completely mystified by it. I had no idea what was going on in the story. It was, it was something that required three or four readings. Do you think there's anything that will make things easier on our listeners that they should know before you read? Hmm, that's a good question. I think the story moves toward um, more hallucination from Ruth. Is that okay to say, or is that giving too much away? <laughs> I think that's okay. I think that's there are a lot of clues along the way that everything isn't as it seems, 
Right, yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Dana Spiota reading Chicken Hill by Joy Williams. Chicken Hill. She didn't know what had possessed her to participate in such a thing. A little boy had been run over by a sheriff's deputy, and there was a memorial fundraiser at the Barbed Wire, a biker bar in a somewhat alarming part of town, and Ruth had gone and bought a beer and put $30 into an empty terrarium for funeral expenses. The place was loud and crowded, and she was given a plate with a tamale on it. Outside, someone had brought a pony and was providing pony rides for the dead boy's friends. No one spoke to her directly, but she learned that the boy's name was Hector and that his father was suing the sheriff's department. Good, Ruth thought. But Hector's death, it seemed, was Hector's fault. He had run into the street against the light, his fault against the light. The details were so paltry. Ruth could have told Hector's father that he would find no satisfaction with his lawsuit, but she never returned to the barbed wire where she might have found him to express this belief. It was a tough little place. Going there had been one of the last journeys she had taken, though, of course, she did not know this at the time. It had been difficult to find. The closer she got to it, the more frequently she'd had to ask for directions. People had assumed that she was looking for something else and had not been as helpful as they might have been. None of Ruth's friends knew about her excursion to the little fellow's memorial, which, Ruth had to remind herself, had been scarcely a memorial at all but a fundraiser, which she had respectfully participated in, though why she had given the curious amount of $30 was a puzzle. It was probably all she'd had in her purse at the time, all she ever seemed to have in her purse. No one had spoken on behalf of the boy, and there hadn't been a single photograph of him there, not even a duplicate of the poor one that had appeared in the newspaper, cropped from a group of people, it seemed, his little face shaded by a preposterously large cowboy hat and quite blurry. It was probably just coincidence that a child appeared not long after that. This one, a girl, belonged to the doctor who lived nearby in a house painted a prominent aubergine. The house had once been invisible from Ruth's veranda, or what she called her veranda, but the doctor had removed a stand of cottonwoods in order to install solar panels, and now she could make out a sliver of the sprawling place. The removal had been modestly controversial, but supporters of the doctor's actions had argued that the trees were running on fumes anyway, and, being as starved and delusional as they were, could be dangerous. She supposed the fools were talking about memory, the tree's memory of some water source that had now dried up. Greetings between Ruth and the child had never been exchanged before, nor were they now, exactly. It was a hot day, as all the days were, and Ruth was on her veranda eating a tuna fish sandwich. She seldom ate tuna fish sandwiches because she found them an uncomfortable physical experience. After a few swallows, she felt as if she were having a heart attack. There was the tightness in her chest, her esophagus constricting, resisting passage, her oppressive, baffled alarm. It was as if the splendid and courageous giant of the oceans were rising up in horror, disputing what had been done to it, and why should it not? Putting the sandwich aside, Ruth took large gulps of air and then small ones, trying to restore order to her thrashing chest. The girl watched her gravely. Ruth suspected that she was there to request permission to play in the gully behind her house, which Ruth considered an attractive nuisance, though it was by no means attractive. Indeed, it was more like a ravine, a dark peculiarity, than a gully. But the child did not request permission, which Ruth wouldn't have granted anyway. Instead, she said, I would like to draw you in plein air. 
No, thanks, Ruth said. Do you have dogs? I do. May I see them? No, Ruth said. You used to have dogs. To reassure you, I could show you some work I've done in the past. She was not an appealing child, but she didn't seem mentally deficient or malformed either. Still, she was something of a runt, made more runt-like by the enormous backpack she wore. From this pink, somewhat smelly apparatus, she extracted several pieces of construction paper. These aren't good at all, Ruth exclaimed. She was sincerely dismayed. I'm just beginning, the child said. I should be encouraged. Not by me, I'm afraid, Ruth said. Do you give blood? What do you mean? Do you ever give blood? No, Ruth said. You should. Only 38% of the population is eligible to give blood, and only 8% of them actually donate. The need for blood is constant and ongoing. Maybe I'm not eligible. I bet you are. You probably are. I'm old. I need my blood. Was this what they talked about at the doctor's house? Blood? And the efficient avidity of those hideous solar slabs? Ruth had no children but many friends, or she thought she had many friends. They stood up pretty well to her requirements, but sometimes they didn't. Actually, she could probably count fewer friends now than she'd had even a year ago. As for children, though her experience with them was limited, this one here seemed a doozy. She wondered if the girl had ever encountered little Hector, but quickly dismissed the possibility. The two traveled in different circles, lived in separate worlds, the doctor's daughter and the felon's son, for it had been disclosed that Hector's father had a rap sheet as long as your arm, though he hadn't done anything recently. That backpack needed to be washed and thoroughly aired. Would you like some of my old jewelry to play with? Ruth surprised herself by saying. I guess, the child said. You go away now, and when you come back in a few months, say, I'll give you some jewelry. I'll come back tomorrow. That's so soon, Ruth protested. But all right, the day after tomorrow. The important thing is to go away now. Ruth retreated inside and watched the child trudge back to the aubergine house, the sliver of which was so unpleasantly visible. The backpack all but eclipsed her. It must be quite heavy, Ruth thought, or something. When the child appeared again, Ruth was back on her veranda, staring without much interest at her right hand, which had recently completed a letter of condolence to her mechanic's widow. As a rule, the mechanic had not accepted Toyotas, but he had made an exception for Ruth, and though he had worked on her car with some indifference and disdain, he'd kept it running and at a fair price. People were dying right and left around Ruth. Death was picking up the pace. Two poets she had never met but read with great pleasure were taken on the same day. Her pedicurist had died, and what would Ruth do without her unjudgmental services? It was so easy to let oneself go. You're here for the jewelry, I suppose, Ruth said. I'd forgotten about the jewelry, but okay. Ruth had actually gone through her jewelry some time ago, but she was still amazed at how much of it she had. She could remember the provenance of only a fraction of it. Provenance, the girl said. That's an interesting word. What does it mean? Ruth wasn't aware that she had uttered the word aloud, though there was no reason not to, it being a perfectly benign word. The child was paler than Ruth remembered and scrawnier than ever. The pink backpack could quite possibly weigh more than she did. Do you really need that thing? Ruth inquired. Doesn't your mother ever wash it? The doctor? Ruth supposed her own question had been merely rhetorical. Bring it up here. Take everything out of it, and I'll scrub it with a good bar of soap. 
the thought of some of her jewelry, for she had no intention of giving the girl all of it, being lowered into that stinking sack prompted her to action. Also, she was curious as to what could be in the massive thing. The child hopped up the steps, unstrapped herself, and began unzipping the backpack's numerous pockets. This took some time. There was nothing. It held nothing. Ruth decided that she didn't want to tackle the problem with a good bar of soap. It was all right. Whatever. Sometimes you try to fix something and it ends up more broken than ever, or broken in a different way. You don't even have your drawings in there. What happened to your drawings? I decided that was the wrong approach. What would you say your discomfort level is right now on a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being your most comfortable or least discomfortable, of course. I'm quite comfortable, thank you, Ruth said. Mine's around a 6. To be honest, perhaps mine as well. Neither chose to elaborate on these disclosures. A little breeze wound past them. Ruth remembered that breeze and was always grateful when it reappeared. The veranda was somewhat oppressive and in need of paint. Portions of the floor had rotted through, and you had to stay away from those. Can I see your dogs? Not today, Ruth said. Thomas Aquinas said that friendship between humans and animals is impossible. That's idiotic. I've never heard of anything more ridiculous. What could he have been thinking, right? The child was hunched into her backpack again. Once you're dead, you shouldn't be red. Well, I wouldn't go that far, Ruth said. I have brothers and sisters, you know, a whole mess of them. Really? I haven't been aware of them. I mean, I haven't seen them. Just me. What? You've just seen me. Yes, Ruth said. Ruth thought she'd walk up to the doctor's house, take a good look, figure this thing out, get to the bottom of it. She dressed as well as she could, for the weather was every which way. It was hard to know. First dry and hot, then such humidity that it was difficult to breathe. She selected a skirt and blouse, a sweater. Her closet was stuffed with things she hadn't put on in years. She pulled out a pair of shoes that were velvety with mildew. One more wear and then out they'd go, she decided. She ate a bowl of cereal. The milk had gone bad. Sometimes the refrigerator took pride in keeping things cool and crisp, and sometimes it didn't seem to care. She began cautiously. The way was slippery, greasy almost, and tipped upward toward the aubergine house. The solar panels lay there, ruthless and withholding. The house was silent and looked pretty much the way it always had to Ruth. She hadn't really examined it before, but scrutiny afforded her nothing new. Other than its perplexing color and the depressing row of stumps on its southern border, it was unexceptional. The child did not appear, nor did any mess of others, not that Ruth would have been surprised if she were told by a responsible party that they didn't exist. The girl was prone to enlarge on the truth, and her knowledge was exaggeratedly spotty, certainly. Ruth tried to think of herself at that age. It was winter, and she was sliding down Chicken Hill on a piece of cardboard, no one had real sleds with runners. Everyone had a piece of cardboard. It was called Chicken Hill because it ended at the road. You had to know what you were doing. She'd been a far more robust child than this one, and not as humorless or demanding, though the girl was demanding only of her time so far, which wasn't much, or was everything, depending on how you looked at it. Chicken Hill, Chicken Hill, what a place, the world! She could feel the purity of its cold core and see the slick ice shining. Her sled had once been a carton that held gallon jugs of maple syrup. It was so strong, 
the finest, fastest board on Chicken Hill. The sounds of children laughing and screaming faded, and she found herself standing dumbly before the doctor's house, which exhibited no sign of life whatsoever. She turned and made her way down the street again to her own unkempt home. She saw this clearly. The place needed some fluffing up. But she had five dogs. There was a lot of wear and tear. More than five would have brought her to the attention of the authorities. Keep the authorities at bay as long as you are able was her motto. On the steps, she paused and kicked off the foul shoes. She opened the door, hoping the dogs wouldn't knock her over in ecstatic greeting. They had no idea of their size and were always so glad to see her. But the dogs were not there. They had vanished as though they had never been, along with their bowls and beds. That last detail, that their belongings were gone, too, gave her hope that, despite appearances, a cruelty had not occurred. Naturally, Ruth was heartbroken. She loved her dogs. If such a thing could happen, anything could happen. Someone might suggest that she had not had the dogs at the same time. After all, five was a lot to handle at her age, and they'd been big dogs, too, but had a succession of dogs over the years. But that would have been mean and not helpful in the least. You can't live a life that's no longer your own. Which was a truth that surely didn't apply only to her, for many must feel they are living lives that they no longer inhabit, just as sometimes the tears you shed seem to come from the eyes of another. Ruth was concerned that the child would ask to see the dogs, as she usually did, but she did not. Of course, Ruth could have said no or not today once again, but it wouldn't have been the same. One of my classmates died, the girl announced. She was in my grade at school. And what grade is that, Ruth asked, quite irrelevantly, she knew. Her voice had become faint with disuse. If it hadn't been for the child's visits, she might have lost it altogether, and the visits were becoming less reliable. Their connection was wavering. Ruth could feel it. The second, she had a rare form of cancer. They said they'd never seen such a cancer before behaving the way it did. Oh, they're always saying that, Ruth said impatiently. So many people came to her funeral. You'd think she'd taken a bullet for a senator or something. You must be sad. It's quite sad. I know, the girl said piously. Death's got the bit in her teeth these days, I'd say. Ruth saw it then suddenly, as she would a picture, her horse, Abdiel. She would ride him on Chicken Hill in the summer when the grass was high and smelled so sweet. Grass could no longer smell as sweet. He was a big horse, probably too big for Ruth as a child, but they seemed to have an understanding, the two of them. Abdiel. Her mother and father had named him for the angel in Paradise Lost. Faithful found among the faithless. Faithful only he. They had loved books. Their house was full of books, all in other hands now, or worse, the books and pictures and animals. Ruth hadn't been much of a reader herself. As a child, she'd wanted to possess herself, only herself. This was her duty yet she was aware that any moment could take away the assurance that this was possible. Her mother and father had not been very sensible. They were bohemians, romantics, clever and hungry and bright, believers in the wild freedoms that life bestows and which time and death are so eager to unsustain. Her father had said that Abdiel looked like Tolstoy's horse, the one in the famous photograph, black and spirited, his gleaming flesh forever rippling and shuddering, as though grazed by an unseen hand as they galloped on Chicken Hill. Chicken Hill, what a place, the world. I believe, the girl said, and it saddens me to say this, but I believe we've come to the end of our options here. 
Have I told you about the horse, my horse, Abdiel? You have, the girl said. Oh my, I did, because I haven't thought about him in ever so long, and he was so real, such a living force, my determinant. Quite real, the child agreed. He was the last real thing, I think. Not a piece of harmless cardboard, not a scrap of my imagining. Imagination only fails us in the end when the stories we tell ourselves have to stop. You don't mind me saying that I'm going, do you? The doctor's packing us all up. We're going away. Where, Ruth managed, but she didn't hear her voice saying anything. Her voice had nothing to say. Who knows? No one tells me anything. Ruth was almost happy getting to the bottom of it, for she felt that she had. The corners of her poor veranda were dissolving into shadow. She didn't even see herself leaving, having just, at last, gone. That was Dana Spiota reading Chicken Hill by Joy Williams. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 2015. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Dana, we start the story off with Ruth going to a fundraiser to uh, raise money to pay for the funeral of a boy who was run over by a sheriff's deputy. And she, she didn't know the boy. She didn't know anyone involved. It's not entirely clear who was at fault in the accident. Why do you think Williams chose that particular event to set this story in motion? I asked myself the same question. It's an interesting place to begin because it doesn't appear at first to have much to do with the story that follows, right? I think partially, of course, it is a little boy's death. And maybe it's not, right? It's a memorial that's also a fundraiser. Later on, we find out that it just seemed like that might even be a con that that happened. Um, altogether. Maybe that's why the picture is so blurry. So we're already on kind of slippery ground with what's real and what's not. And we also get the fact that she's 
got lost getting to this place and people weren't being particularly helpful. So she seems pretty confused right off the bat. And I also think we get a lot of the humor. The tone of the story is very funny and absurd, and it kind of sneaks up on you and becomes very sad. I mean, the tamale on the plate, why is that funny? But it is. And the fact that the money goes into an empty terrarium. I mean, that's hilarious. I, only Joy would come up with that. That's hilarious. But, and, and you know, she herself weird. wonders about why she gave $30. And then she's like, well, that's probably all I had. <laughs> you know, right, that's all I right. ever have in my wallet. That's all I had wallet. in my purse. <laughs> and we get that right away. The narrator says going there had been one of the last journeys she had taken, though, of course, she did not know this at the time. So the boy is dead and we know this is one of her last journeys. So right away, the whole idea of death is really put up front. And you know what's funny about the story is we get so many deaths in the story that it's funny. That's how many deaths we get. We get the little Hector. We get the mechanic who doesn't want to work on her Toyota. We get the pedicurist. We get the two poets. And then we get the second grader. And of course, we get the dogs. And then we get Ruth. Right. And implied in there, her parents and her and horse. And her parents. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the poor tuna that gets eaten. I mean, there's just, and she even says, she makes comments on it, which are kind of funny toward the beginning. But then somehow, when we finally get to the end, it moves to a, a much sadder and more profound feeling in the story. It's kind of remarkable. Well, so there's this interesting movement from that first death, the little boy who dies, to the appearance of another child. So we, we go from one child who doesn't appear to another who does appear, but mysteriously, and with this, this heavy backpack full of nothing. Yes, the somewhat smelly apparatus of the backpack. Do you think there's a connection between the two children? I mean, she wonders herself if there is. <laughs> yes, there's that, that line, it was probably just coincidence. And that probably, again, qualifying it. Yeah, I mean, there are these interesting clues that you get as you go. Um, the trees being delusional that indicate that something questionable is happening here. Right, the trees living on on their memory of earlier water. <laughs> yes, which is just great, great. Becoming and so dangerous. unexpected, right? So yeah. unexpected. Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's a volatile landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, aubergine houses and strange solar panels. And then this girl appears, and do you think we're supposed to read her as real or as a vision? I didn't think she was real. I mean, at first you do, and she and I think what's fun about the girl is she has a lot of realness in her, but she's she's one of these very precocious little girls, you know, with her plen air that she wants to draw. And I love the way she that they have these very discontinuous dialogue where she'll talk about wanting to draw her and then she'll just ask about the dogs and then she'll just say, do you give blood? I mean, it's very, very funny to read. But by the time we get to the end, when she says, uh, you know, I think we've come to the end here, that she almost seems as if she could be uh, a sort of supernatural or hallucinatory figure, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I was working on the story, I asked Williams about that. And she said, you know, that as the story says, the memorial service is the last real event that Ruth experiences, and that this little girl is just who she she happens to see instead of an angel or, or death with its scythe. I think that really makes sense when you read it again. You see a lot of clues, because even when she asks about the dogs, she says, do you have dogs? She says, I do. Right in the beginning, the little girl said, you used to have dogs, right? How does the little girl know that? I mean, she's a kind of otherworldly little creature, but not in a typical way, right? I mean, because Ruth is completely 
uncharmed by her in some ways, right? She says she's a little runt. She doesn't like her drawings. I mean, <laughs> her backpack is smelly. She's, her she, backpack's smelly. They have a very antagonistic relationship. I mean, they Ruth do. does not want to let her in. So she's, you know, she's obviously resisting. Yeah, she says, please just, the important thing is that you just go away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come back tomorrow. Come back next month. I'll have some jewelry. Uh, I'm going to buy you off with some jewelry. What's interesting to me is, yes, you can read the story this way, and this could be death coming for Ruth in a slightly odd form. At the same time, there's so much specificity. There's the death of the mechanic and the pedicurist. There's the solar panels. There's this girl's friend dying of cancer. There's all of these details, and you wonder what they're there for. Do you think each of these things carries some kind of symbolic meaning, or do you think it's just sort of there to provide color for the narrative? Part of the joy of reading the story is how specific everything is. And I think there's a kind of multiplicity here where things are are multiple things at once, right? So she's the little um, supernatural creature, but she's also a precocious little girl who says things that irritate Ruth. And so I think it's part of what makes it distinctive and unusual and allows you to really read it without feeling as if you know the story, you know, that you have to kind of pay attention to everything because there are all these wild things being thrown at you. Probably my favorite line in the story is when she's talking about Abdiel, her her horse, towards the end of the story, and she describes him as, he was so real, such a living force, my determinant. And I just thought, well, that's such a weird word. Why would she pick that word, you know, mm-hmm. my determinant? And, uh, and in the same section, she's talking about the parents, and she says, they were bohemians and um, believers in the wild freedom that life bestows and which time and death are so eager to unsustain. And, you know, if I'd written that sentence, I would have put to undo, Right. Mm -hmm. But she puts unsustain. And that really is the key to the story for me, because it's really about this life falling away and not being sustainable. And that's what's happening to Ruth. Things are sort of falling away. And some of them are very vivid and particular, her memories of Chicken Hill, her horse. And then others of them are more confusing and hard to read. But it's all falling away. And I think that her word choice is really... um, where the meaning is made and what makes you stop and go deeper. Yeah, I mean, there's a wonderful sense in which all of this could just be a kind of nonsensical dream narrative. And yet there's an enormous deliberate sense of purpose underneath that. Yes, that everything is connected and recurs in this interesting way. So you see how highly deliberate it is. It's true. It's true. And I love that that at the end of the story, Ruth says, I'm going to go over to the doctor's house and I'm going to try to get to the bottom of this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then that comes back at the end when she said she was almost happy getting to the bottom of it. You know, so there is a lot of deliberateness here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she finally gets to the bottom of things. And, and we do sort of as well, even down to these details, like the horse being named Abdiel, and who's an angel um, in Paradise Lost. So right. Of course, she hasn't seen an angel at her moment of passing. She's seen this slightly annoying kid. But (laughs) but she's passed back in her mind. This child reminds her of a force that was sort of angelic in her life. So there's there's a wonderful way that these sort of symbols or non-symbols play off against each other. The idea of memory is really interesting, too, because we started out with the tree's memory, and then we get these vivid memories of her childhood, right? The first is 
is going down the hill on the piece of cardboard, which mm-hmm. is so specific, right, as we were saying. And that great line that gets repeated, Chicken Hill, what a place, the world. And you're really thinking about, like, what you're letting go of when you die, right? You're letting go of this Chicken Hill, what a place, the world. And then the horse, right, the last real thing. And this is the my takeaway after I'd read the story a bunch of times and I was thinking about it. And this is why I love her stories because things come to you later, is that when you get to that point where – your past memories are more real and more vivid than the present and certainly the future, then you're, you're done, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, she has no, there's nothing more to be done at that point. Her voice had nothing to say anymore. And so that's sort of what's happening to Ruth. We're seeing that the present is just really a blur. It's got those shoes velvety with mildew and the sour milk and everything's kind of fading away. But what's real is, are these memories from her childhood. I thought that was so profound. And also this idea of Chicken Hill. It's a hill you slide down at top speed, and you have to know what you're doing because if you don't, at the bottom of it, you ride straight into traffic. Um, exactly. Death again, right? Yeah, there Right. We go. So this is, this mm-hmm. is what's at the end of Chicken Hill is death. Um, what's at the end of the world is death. And I like that you can't pin it down because I think the mystery of it, you know, is part of what makes you think about it. And so some of those... The kind of blurriness is appropriate to what the story is about. There was another uh, interview quote from from Joy Williams where she said, Abstraction in fiction is supposed to be bad, but it can be just the struck match that illuminates. Much of a writer's work is to unexpress the expressible as well as the opposite. Oh, I love that. And that, yes, that it, just seems so apt for the story, unexpressing the expressible. Yeah, I mean, I think about the last sentence of the story... That last paragraph, Ruth was almost happy getting to the bottom of it, for she felt that she had. So she has that moment of grace that Joy was talking about, where she sees things. And then you get, she didn't even see herself leaving, having just at last gone. Such an interesting last sentence. You know, you read it over and you think, hmm. How does anyone see themselves leaving? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she, she, she kind of gives her this moment, but it's almost as soon as the moment's there, it's over. And um, she doesn't see the child leave. She doesn't see herself leaving because how can any of us witness our own deaths, right? So it's like, does she really get that moment of grace at the end? She almost does. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. why she's almost happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She just does not tie it up in a way that's reducible, really. You're sort of, wow, you know. So what is that smelly pink backpack? (laughs) That apparatus? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that is. I mean, uh, what do you think it is? Well, you know, you can push your thinking about symbols and and images way too far, but it did occur to me that it was, in a sense, a body, that our our skin is this kind of smelly pink backpack. And this one, you know, she wanted to go at it with a bar of soap, and then she was just like, oh, no, I can't be bothered. (laughs) Um, So there's a sense of this body slipping away in in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think letting go, the fact that she gives up on the cleaning that backpack and she says, you know, sometimes you try to fix something and it ends up more broken than ever or broken in a different way. I mean, she has to let go of everything. That's why she has that moment is because she does finally realize she has nothing left. Yeah, I mean, there are some things I can't figure out. I think it's interesting the line about Thomas Aquinas said that friendship between human and a- humans and animals is impossible. And that's interesting to have that in there. And I guess that's also because we know about the dogs and we know about the horse when we get to them. Um, 
but it's sort of a, a strange thing to throw into the conversation, right? Well, in a way, it's an argument that Joy Williams is having with, with uh, Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> yes, <know>? yes, yes. <laughs> um, but again, that's a, you know, a religious figure, so I guess it's, it's still populated by the, a lot of symbols of uh, something not being just the material world at this point. Ruth eats the tuna fish, which rises up in protest and gives her a heart attack, right? She thinks she's having a heart attack with this tuna fish stuck in her chest. And from that moment on, she tries to push everything away that's coming at her, this little girl and the religious symbolism and, and so on. She's, there's a sense that she is trying to avoid what's coming at her. It all becomes part of that. So any, any quote, anything anyone throws at her or, or do you give blood, anything, she's going to respond in a negative way. No, I don't want to be right. drawn. I don't want this. I don't want that. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting that by the time she gets to the end of the story... She changes. She's not as um, aggressive towards the little girl, right? Yeah. She says, you must be sad. It's quite sad. And we've been laughing all along at all the death. And then at this point, the story starts to get quite sad, right? And then she, she kind of gets to that point where she's, she's almost a child herself when she's talking about the horse. And she said, oh, my, I did because I haven't thought about him in ever so long, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. even sound the girl is more authority. Mm-hmm. And it's really changed between them. In this last scene, the power, right? the power relationship, yeah. The girl is now saying these very, you know, profound things about imagination failing and storytelling, and I believe we've come to the end of our options here. She's no longer the same little girl as she was in the beginning. Now, no, in a way, she's become Ruth. Yes, yeah, she's become the older one now, and They've Ruth is blended together in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People always talk about Joy Williams' stories as as so dark and nihilistic. How do you think the humor and the darkness tie together so well in what she does? What's so nice about it is I think the humor, I see this also in in George Saunders' stories too, and that the humor disarms you in a way. You know, you're sort of laughing and then all of a sudden it really catches your heart. And so I, I find the humor to be disarming more than anything. And I find her stories to be quite emotional. And also they don't seem nihilistic to me. They seem very interested in as I say, the things beyond the material. I wouldn't say religious necessarily, but there is a feeling of spiritual, uh, non-material forces. I do think that that it's very unsentimental about um, human beings sometimes, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel that all those things work together, you know, that you can be really emotional because you're not being corny about it. Mm -hmm. You're being sort of ruthless. Right. Ruth is being ruthless. (laughs) Yes, Ruth is being ruthless. But, you know, but, but... the, the memories of the horse and the memories of being on the hill, all of that can, is quite emotional, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's like she can get away with that emotionality by also having a lot of dark jokes, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that combination is partly what makes Joy Williams very, very difficult to imitate. Like George Saunders, it's oh, very it's hard, hard to, to pull off. It's very hard <laughs> it's to really... pull off. And, and another person could try to write a story like this and, and everyone would say, well, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I hear that a lot, that her stories are open-ended or something. And I think there's fruitful ambiguity. I think actually George is the one who always says a fruitful ambiguity or just, or maybe he's quoting someone else, uh, or just um, sort of being obscure. And I think Joy gives you everything you need to understand the story. She just doesn't explain it to you. You have to kind of participate and engage it and read what's in front of you and get all that there's there. But it's all there. Yeah. It's a quite deliberate way of making you work, making you work for your satisfaction. She gives you pleasure you don't have to work for, but satisfaction you do have to work for. 
Yeah, I think that's the the um, delightfully surprising word choices that she does and the sentences keep you engaged and the humor. And then, you know, when you figure out how it all works, you have to kind of uh, put some effort out at the end. And, 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 and I also think there's they always retain some mystery, her stories. Uh, you can't forget them. It's like Dennis Johnson. You sort of think about the end for a long time afterwards. And, you, you know, at different times in your life, you might have a different idea about how all the pieces fit together. And I think that's a great thing in a story. Well, thank you so much, Dana. Thank you so much, Deborah. This was great. Joy Williams is the author of four novels and five story collections, including The Quick and the Dead and 99 Stories of God. Her most recent book, The Visiting Privilege, New and Collected Stories, was published by Knopf last year. Dana Spiota is the author of Lightning Field, Eat the Document, Stone Arabia, and most recently Innocence and Others, which was published by Scribner in March. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. If you enjoy The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, you may also enjoy our new podcast, The Author's Voice, New Fiction from The New Yorker. On The Author's Voice, you'll hear short stories from the magazine, read by their authors. You can find The Author's Voice on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker Fiction on NewYorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>